And uh, yeah, as we regather, do want to uh, do want to say good morning to everyone. Um, I'm Silas, the interim lead pastor. Welcome to Bethany Northeast. Again, we do see people who have been here a long time, people who are new. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. Grateful that you are here. And um, I'm glad to be leading us as we look at God's word in a moment. We're starting a new series today that will take us through the book of First John. And this is a treat. We're in for a rich, um, applicable series that um, over the next five weeks we'll journey together and we'll discover how the scriptures invite us to love one another, to be a community of uh, confession with each other. It's a really, th- this book is a really tangible book. It's one that translates well in that way. But before we even go into um, the text or any of those pieces, join me in prayer just as we pray over our reception of God's word in this series. God, uh, thank you for the gift of this day. We are grateful for this time to gather, to pray, to receive from your word. We pray that as we read your word, you would read our lives. That it wouldn't just stay in our heads, but what we hear and learn, you would speak and communicate with our hearts and shape how we use our hands. We pray the spoken word would be faithful to your written word, that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Uh, In a moment, Thane is going to put an image up on screen, but uh, what I'd love us to do as you see this image is in silence, by yourself, take a moment and read the words that will be on screen. And then when you're done, look from the screen, look at me, so then I'll know that we're good, we can move on. Um, But yeah, let's get that image up there, Thane. Take a moment. Everyone, read this image. Take a look at it. And then when you're done reading it, look back at me. Okay, how we doing? Making it through? We don't need to overanalyze it. You can just read it. It's all good. There's no pop quiz. There's no, there's no test. Okay, we all set? So we've read it. That's good. That's good. Now, if you've seen this before, um, that's lovely. I want you to remember the first time you read these words. But if you haven't read this, I want you now to do this. Something on screen here. All of these letters, I want you to count how many of those are on the screen. We're going to show those words again. We'll have it up. This letter, we all know it. F, right? You don't have to do, there's no trick. So just the black text on the white background. How many of those are in the passage? And then when you have that, when you have your number, stand up. And then when we're all standing up, I'll know what to, uh, I'll I'll know to progress us, okay? So we're going to put those words back on. Thane, let's see those. Again, do this silently. Count how many of those letters there are. The first one is a letter. And then stand up when you're done. It's all good. Again, there's no quiz. It's not too long of a paragraph. Take a look at it. Feeling okay? All right, all right. Good. Everyone set? 
Everyone's standing, so we have an answer. That's good. Okay, now, here's what I want us to do. If you have three or less, if you can have three or less of those, sit down. That's great. What about four? If you had four or less, sit down. Five? If you had five or less, sit down. There's actually six. So those who are still standing, there's six. Take a seat. There's no prize, but what this is telling us, though, is take a look, right? We have finished files. We have the Fs in the ofs there. We have one in scientific. It's right there, right? It's curious. Now, what, the reason I start with this is the content is right in front of us. The content is right in front of us. All of us can read, right? We, we can engage this, or we can make meaning of what's there. We all have those Fs. And yet, like, as we all read this, notice, I want you to notice what happened in the room. We had very different reads of what this was. What's striking about this, right, is we're all right. Like, there were three Fs. That's not a bad answer. It's not the wrong answer. It's an incomplete answer. Just like even with six, you had the answer right, but there's other things in the text, so it always works back on us. When we do something like this, it helps us understand and it reminds us that Scripture is like this. There are always things right in front of it. And as we read and as we engage, we might miss things, not because we're doing something wrong, but just because we focused on the first letter. Now let us, as we go through this series, 1 John, focus on the first letter, see that, but also see the meat in between these chapters. Again, we're going to spend five weeks going through 1 John, or essentially uh, one week per chapter. And as we do this, the question that I want us to always think back on is, can we see it? Can we see it? Can we see what is in front of us? Can we see how God is present in the text? Can we see how God is inviting us out of the text? And can we see how we're being shaped and moved to embody God in new ways from the text? Can we see it? In terms of its difficulty, in Greek, uh, 1 John is one of the easier books to read in, in the original language. So vocabulary-wise, it's pretty repetitive. Its structure is familiar. If you're learning Greek in an academic setting, this is probably one of the first books that you will translate um, from tip to tail. Because it's, once you have essentially the first chapter down, you can do about 80% of the rest of the book. So it translates well. Um, in terms of Greek, we, we can all read this book well with relative ease once you get a couple ground rules. And so when you're learning Greek, um, as ones want to do, uh, as you're doing that, you, you can really get a lot of the, the text itself. I spent a lot of time in First John because I failed my first Greek class. So... <laughs> I had to repeat the class, which means that I got a double dosing in 1 John because we spent so much time there. Um, 
And as we do that, some things that stick out from the text, they, when you start to wrestle with it, sit with it longer, you get to see the depth that perhaps communicates in richer ways. This book, it's an exercise that, um, that opens us up to the love of God. If there's one thing that we can latch on to in 1 John, it's a book that opens us up to the love of God. In a couple weeks, we will focus on where the book kind of crescendos. It kind of goes up, and it meets at this one main point, and we'll unpack that then. But the love of God is through this whole book, which is challenging because sometimes when we just read the chapters by themselves, we miss that focus. But in the chapter we're reading today, this whole one, I'm going to read it for us in just a second, don't lose this. Can we see it? And how is the love of God here? With that, we're going to read the chapter. We're reading from a translation today that, um, that I love. It's called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It's not one that we typically read from in this um, in our, in our church, we might do the ESV or NIV, but some of the textual decisions, they're really strong uh, in that. It also is from an angle that is different than some of the other traditional angles that we read from. So with that, that's all. A lot of intro and caveat. Let's get into the text. Verse 1, John 1, or First John 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed... And have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, what we also declare to you. So that you may have fellowship among us. And indeed our fellowship is, the, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. As I read these words, what stood out to you from this chapter? We've already engaged with each other a little bit. Humor me. What stands out to you in this chapter? What are verses or themes or words or threads Sometimes in Bible study on Tuesdays, we like to ask this question. If I had to distill this down and say, this is what this chapter is communicating, if I was going to distill it down for a child, 
What stands out to you? Thoughts? What's this? Alicia. I love it. It begins with a lot of the senses, the physicality, seen, heard, touched. Yeah, that's a great observation. Other things, what stands out? Yeah, that, that walking in darkness, walking in light, God is light. In God, there is no darkness. There's that whole idea. Thank you, Andy. Anyone else? Any one more? Fame. Mm. Yeah, what does it mean if we say we don't thin, uh, d- say we don't sin? Is what Thane said. That's a tongue twister. Um, yes, you're right. What's striking in that uh, in that theme that Thane just brought out for us is the way that this, as a book, invites us to engage the concept of sin and redemption and forgiveness. If you look at verse 6, could we put the text back up there, Thane? If we look at verse 6, notice, it starts by saying, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. What's this telling us? It tells us that in order to live uh, with integrity, to live that honesty. We need to practice what we preach. Practice the truth. Not just say it. And if we don't do that, we're lying. But notice, we're lying not with our words. We're lying with how we live. We're lying with how we live. So it starts by looking at this idea, this concept, in verse 6, by words and action not meshing together. But now look at verse 8. Verse 8, it has that other theme. It says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. So we're tricking ourselves. We're lying. We're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. The last time that this chapter talks about lying or deception or that kind of thing, it makes a bigger claim. Look at verse 10. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. Verse 6, verse 8, verse 10. Start with action. If our actions don't match our words, if our words don't communicate the truth well, it's not just about us, it's about God. We make God a liar. What's this telling us? It invites us to think about the way that sin has a reach in our lives that is action-based. It also incorporates our words. And it's not just about us. It's not just me and my own conscience or me and my moral code. It communicates something about God about the way that we experience God. This is what's hidden in the midst of this text. We have these ways that this theme of uh, deception 
grows in its intensity. So that at the end of the chapter, it talks about us being able to say that God is a liar. Not just us. We make him a liar. That's a lot of weight. Probably makes this chapter feel a little heavier as we look at that thread. Perhaps one of the ways that this chapter, when we think of this, feels so heavy is because for many of us in Western Christianity, we've been, uh, we've been conditioned to think of sin in particular ways. So if you look at the scriptures, there are so many metaphors that exist to describe sin, ways that exist through the scriptures. Uh, Gary Anderson, he is from Yale. He wrote this great book called... Uh, Sin, a history. Sin, a history. And what it does is it traces through all of the scriptures and then through the early church how the metaphors of sin change through the scriptures. And so we always want to remember we are not ancient Near Eastern Hebrew people. We don't read Hebrew. And language shapes the ways that we uh, conceive of, that we imagine the world. And so when we look at the metaphors for sin, I'm saying this with a linguist in the, uh, sitting in our midst, but when we think of the metaphors for sin that exist through the Old Testament, notice early on we have that idea of they would put all the sins on the lamb and send the lamb away, right? And one of the feasts, they would send the lamb away in the morning and then send one in the evening. And what he's going to talk about, Gary Anderson, in his book, is he talks about the metaphor of sin being distance. Sin is something that distances, that puts weight on us and distances us from God. This is one of the ways we conceive of it. But it's not the only way. It's probably not the way we typically have imagined it. Because for us, a lot of us in Western expressions of Christianity, we've thought of sin more in terms of a legal standing. So we think about it in terms of uh, a judicial or a legal metaphor. We also sometimes might use the words of debt or payment. There's some kind of thing that's owed, and we, uh, sin is something that, uh, on, on the accounts, it means that we owe God something. We owe someone something. We've racked up a balance, and that has to get paid by, or paid for by someone. So there's weight, there's physical burden, there's economic metaphors, there's imperfection. We see this in Romans, where it talks about uh, perfection being a, a way of experiencing sin in our lives. We also have the image of rebellion in the scriptures. That's what sin is, rebellion against God. Think about this, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. It's in that passage talking about rebellion against God. These are all metaphors that are in the text, that are in the Christian tradition. Think back to that exercise we did at the beginning. A lot of F's around. All of these images are present in the text. And yet one that we might miss because we are Western Christians um, is that we can miss 
the richness of the Eastern tradition as well. Because their dominant metaphor when they talk about sin isn't judicial or forensic. It's more therapeutic. It's more talking about sin as sickness or as illness. Something that makes it difficult for us to leave, that stops our flourishing. This is what sin is. Now we intuitively know this, if you've been in church any, uh, for, for a while, you might have heard God or Jesus referred to as the great physician. We want to meet our maker, the healer of all things, the redeemer of all things. That's one way to talk about turning over sin, turning over illness. God is our healer, the great physician. And so in Christianity, we have this split. We have the Western, and we have the Eastern. We have these ways, these metaphors that talk about sin in different ways. And the dominant metaphor we've grown up with, for a lot of us, has thought of things in this way. It's talked about sin is guilt or transgression. And so because sin is guilt or transgression, if we imagine sin through a legal metaphor, what's that mean? means forgiveness is understood as clearing my name, as getting right with God, as getting on the good books, right? Fill in the, fill in the language or the metaphor, but this is the dominant metaphor we've, for many of us, grown up with. Sin is guilt, transgression, there's a debt to be paid, and so forgiveness means that we can now receive a clearing of our name. We are in good standing with others. Valid metaphor. Valid way of conceiving and thinking about this. But on the Eastern side, if sin is illness, if we imagine sin through the therapeutic metaphor, forgiveness is understood as a process of healing. It's not something that happens immediately. It's something that we're always moving on a trajectory towards. We are always being made new and made whole. There are things in our lives, sin, illness, sickness, that require healing. And as we get connected with God relationally and with other relationally, that starts to change. That starts to make us whole. Again, two dominant metaphors within the Christian tradition. One we're familiar with, one we might not be familiar with. The question for us is, as we read the word sin in this First John passage, which metaphor do you think lands better in the nature of the passage? When we read this and we hear about cleansing and sin, oftentimes we go immediately to the Western because that's where a lot of us have been socialized into the faith. But Alicia pointed out for us so pointedly, notice how the whole passage frames your life and existence. It frames it with physical things. The whole first part of the chapter talks about what you've heard, what you've seen, what you've experienced, what you've touched. It starts with the body. It engages who we are as human beings. It talks about us as full people. It says this is how we experience God. And then when we talk to sin, 
it asks us the same question. Carry that metaphor. Notice how physical and sensory this book is. Everything in this first chapter confirmed through the senses, through the body. This book communicates a picture of health in that first section. More specifically, eternal life. Verse 2, eternal life with God. This passage will talk about being cleansed. We can take this word in a variety of ways. We can think about it in a way of being cleansed from sin, being made right, put on the right side of a legal metaphor. But we also know we cleanse wounds, right? Sometimes people do cleanses to rid themselves of illness or of things. Cleansing can refer to purification. The words, they function in both metaphors, but the one that makes the most sense with the context of the passage is about the physicality, the lived life. Do we see this metaphor shift, how it changes everything? Again, on the West, we have legal standing. Forgiveness leads to having our standing made right. And so the image we have of God and the world is that we enter life through the courtroom. We meet God in the courtroom. And God in the courtroom saves us from being taken to jail, being taken to prison. In this metaphor of sin and forgiveness and all of that, in the courtroom metaphor, this is what exists. But in East, if sin is sickness, Forgiveness leads to healing. And we move from the courtroom to the therapy room. We move from the courtroom to the doctor's office. We move from the, uh, from the legal metaphor to the therapeutic. And we start to see that becoming made whole is a process of overcoming illnesses that keep us from being able to love God and love other well. It leads, in this chapter, in this book, to confession. This is why confession matters. Confession, confession, it causes us to acknowledge our illnesses. And it allows us to begin a trajectory towards healing through community and through relationship with God. Confession causes us to acknowledge our illnesses, the things that keep us from flourishing, the things that keep us from being made well. And it allows us to begin a trajectory towards healing through community and relationship with God. With God, the great physician. You know, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus refers to himself as a physician in all three of those Gospels. What's striking is that when we miss this metaphor, we can take the whole book of 1 John and read a kind of legalism into it, and we can read a legalism into the practice of confession that actually keep us 
from wanting to do it because here's the, here's the rub whenever we think of sin and confession. It might make us, if it's talking about le your legal standing, just embody a sense of shame. A sense of shame that says, oh, I was on this side of the line and I should be on this one. If I'm living right, I'm over here, but I, I, I broke the law. I guess I'm a criminal. Thing is, shame has never, ever led to healing. Shame over, only ever leads to more hiding. And when that's the thing that we use to talk about confession and sin and forgiveness and all these pieces that's so central to our faith, we miss it. Because we're performing the faith, we're not living the faith. So confession isn't about being stirred up to experience shame. It's not being stirred up to pay our dues. It's not doing that and then using the motivation of shame to not sin anymore. That's not life with God. That's not what the faith is about. I love how Richard Rohr makes us think about this. He says, we don't think our way into a new way of living. We live our way into new ways of thinking. When we experience a richness of confession, when we see that confession isn't something that's meant to produce shame in us, but is meant to invite us into a deeper relationship with God, to meet our maker, to meet our physician, it changes the whole nature of how we think about this faith project. One of my uh, favorite coaches, I coach soccer, one of my favorite coaches that engages kids and a whole bunch of things, grassroots, college level, he has this line where he talks about how fear can be a powerful motivator. It can get you buying in the short term, but it is a horrible moral compass. Fear can be a powerful motivator, but it's a horrible moral compass. It gets you compliance in the short term, but it never gets you buy-in in the long term. I wonder if for many of us, the faith that we've been bought into is one that has gotten us compliance in spurts in the short term, but not buy-in in the long term. And that might be if you're anything like me, that might be because the metaphors that we engage God and sin and scripture and confession, the metaphors we used, not that they're not accurate, the picture we got was incomplete. My hope through this series and my hope through this next season is for us to discover a richness of life, a richness of life that starts with being made well, a richness of life that starts with being able to confess without the shame that makes us hide. Being able to meet the physician and acknowledge, I do have some illnesses. I have weaknesses. I have things in my life that keep me from flourishing, from living, from connecting. And God, meet me in these places and set me on a trajectory towards being made whole. When you think about sin in this way, 
Faith becomes something that transforms our life. Transforms everything. The Christian faith isn't a short-term, shame-induced commitment to a self-created projection of God. Catch this. It is a whole life surrender to the living God who lives with us, who invites us to live and move and have our being in God. And so, as we close... The sermon today has been dialogical. It's been reframing a key concept that we will take through the rest of the book. It's wanted to look at the way that 1 John, as a sensory, embodied, physical experience, tries to communicate the faith with this kind of metaphor that we aren't familiar with. And it tries to say, there is so much more. Oh my goodness, there is so much more to than living your faith on one side of a ledger versus the other. Faith is more than that. Relationship with God is more than that. That is a metaphor that exists within the tradition. It's not the only one. And we don't pick and choose the metaphors, but we highlight all of the ways that at the times that we need them, they highlight the right things in our life. Prime example is for myself right now. We have a toddler. We, you're, you're all aware of him. If he comes in the door, you hear him. So <laughs> I don't need to introduce him. He's here. He needs times to hear, no, you can't do that. He needs the ledger. He needs the, this is wrong, this is right. That's the, if that's the only way he's ever taught, we miss giving him a life that engages the fullness of God. We miss giving him a life that is generous with others, that isn't just looked at himself and his moral compass. Am I here or here? It makes him broaden his horizon. How come some of us, if you're anything like me, I might just be preaching to myself, but how come some of us are okay with just a faith that has sat in that stage of looking at the world saying, I'm here or I'm here. This is here or it's here. And here's the line, and this is the line that God sets. The metaphors that exist in this rich book, they're right in front of us. Remember that first thing. They're right in front of us. We're all looking at them. But sometimes we might only see three things. There's six things. Sometimes we might see four things. There's six things. You might see five things. There's six things. Open yourself up to the way God is inviting us to see God in new ways. And so, here's what I'd love for us to do. This is just the first sermon in a series of five where we'll go through this book of John. But to start with, as we engage in new ways, I would love for us to practice confession. And here are some principles that we can use for what confession is. You might still be thinking, I get everything you've said, Silas. I get the trajectory. It still doesn't feel good. <laughs> it still feels uncomfortable. Let me invite you to take the first step on finding healing, on receiving healing, by confessing through written word. 
we have black Sharpies and black Post-it notes there. What you write will be almost impossible to see. And what I'd love for you to do is, over the next five weeks, here and in the weeks to come, write a confession and put it on the cross. And we're going to leave that cross there for five weeks. And my hope is by the end of it, we will be vulnerable enough with each other to have that cross filled up. I promise you, the first thing I'm doing once I put this mic down is I'm going right over there and I'm writing something. Because we're all in need of healing in some way. We're all in need of it. And so I'm not preaching from above you. I'm preaching from within. This is primarily to me. But the richness of this practice of confessing is that it invites us to start encountering God. And then that might push us a little bit to do confession with others. Here's a principle for how we do confession with other people. For public sin, public confession. For private sin, with the people that it involves, private confession. That doesn't mean that I can sin over here in my life or I can make something difficult, I can transgress someone in this way and then just say, I'm just gonna confess over here and not worry about it and it's all gonna be taken care of. That's not the healing that God wants to bring into your life. And it's also not taking into account how this whole passage, remember, verse 6, verse 8, verse 10, there's a trajectory that says, sin makes us, uh, or sin, sin interacts with our actions, sin interacts with how I engage the world and what I say, the incongruence there, and it also affects how God has created. It affects how we see God. We make God a liar in our sin. God bears that and says, come anyways, come to me and find your healing because that's what God is here for. And so again, I invite you as we play worship together, uh, as we go through one song, we're gonna sing a song, um, Canvas and Clay, about potters being made in God's image, being formed in God's image. Confess, start here. And later in the week, as you engage with others, let this be the first step on a journey towards finding wholeness a journey towards overcoming sickness, sin in our lives. And from there, if you would like prayer, we'll also have some people available to pray with you, not to shame you, but to support you. To say, making this first step is hard. I get it. It can be really hard. As we go through this book together, as we journey together, May we be able to take these threads and encounter each other and God well. I'm going to invite the band up. And before we go into this, I'm going to pray over us. If you would like prayer in this space as well, I do invite you not just prayer for uh, what we've talked about today, but if you're carrying any grief for transitions in your life, transitions about uh, Jack's transition out, transitions for the church, transitions for anything, receive prayer. We have Andrew, we have Beth, we have Abby over there. They would love to pray with you and just be uh, the hands and feet of God extended in your life. 
But let me pray over us as we reflect on the ways that this scripture and these scriptures invite us to encounter God in new ways. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We are grateful for all of the ways that you invite us into faith. All the ways that you shape our lives. All the ways that you desire for us to be whole. And so we come to you and we bring our whole selves. We say, God, meet us and make us new. We confess that we have sinned. And yet in that confession, you bring us out from ourselves and you say, come to me and find your being made new. Find new life today. God, specifically if we have grown up with a type of faith that keeps us from recognizing your goodness and your desire for us to be well, we pray that you would break our imaginations and make us see you in new ways over the next five weeks. We pray all of this, God, with you, by your Spirit. And everyone said, Amen.